Welcome to Engage Your Tribe, a podcast about the art and science of audience engagement. I'm Jeremy Shear, founder and CEO of Tribal Knowledge Podcasting. And my guest is Michael O'Connell, VP of Marketing at AnyRoad, a data and insights platform for experiential marketing. Michael, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Jeremy. Really, really happy to, to be on the show and been looking forward to this for, for a couple of weeks now. Excellent. So tell us a little bit about AnyRoad. Well, I'm fairly new to the AnyRoad journey. We've been around for since 2014. It was a company founded by two brothers, Jonathan and Daniel Yaffe. Jonathan had worked early in marketing at Red Bull when they first entered the U.S. market, mm-hmm. and, and Daniel came from the publishing world where he had a magazine focused on spirits and, uh, and whiskey in particular. So mm-hmm. you know, the, the two brothers really got to experience firsthand you know, a lot, many different aspects of experiential marketing and saw a lot of brands investing heavily in experiences. And so, you know, that really, really was the genesis of the company and and why it existed. And I think that that shift in in both brand spending, but also consumer behavior was something that they also noticed. So they they say that millennials prefer experiences over things. So think they prefer Mm. to spend a a thousand dollars on a a fancy bottle of wine uh, or a wine tasting versus buy the bottle of, of wine. And so there's kind of a whole trend that we refer to as the experience economy, which was a a very interesting book written by Joe Pine, a Harvard professor, which talks about this kind of change in uh, consumer behavior, but how how brands are adapting to it. So today, with all that kind of context and and some of the the massive spend that's going on in experiential marketing, any of it really exists to help large enterprises and brands kind of participate in the experience economy. And so... We consider ourselves a, a leader in a new category of software we call experience relationship management. So we empower brands to collect data and registrations from experiences, but also collect insights and, and meaningful insights about uh, how these experiences change customer behavior. So we work with hundreds of brands, including kind of Budweiser, Diageo, Tabasco, Hot Sauce, Michael Stores, to, to name but a few, to help help them run these types of experiences. So anything from in-person events and in-store classes to online online tastings and even online dog training. Oh, interesting. So this must be an, an interesting time for people doing experience marketing given the pandemic and people have been shut in for a while and then we were let out and now we're a little bit shut in again. I would think that a lot of people are hungry for experiences, but maybe it's kind of been difficult to actually organize and engineer experiences like it would have been before the pandemic. I think you're, you're spot on. What we're, what we're seeing is, you know, obviously I, I joined in March, 20, March 24th last year. So two weeks mm. into our first lockdown here in San Francisco. And so at that point, we're like, will experiences ever come back? You know, yeah. it was so much uncertainty. Our, our view the whole time was experiences are going to come back with a bang. But for the interim, they just had to move online. So we pivoted to help a lot of our customers bring their experiences online. You know, most notably, we look at Michael's stores who had a very successful in-store classroom program. They ran 20,000 classes a year from their network of 1,200 stores. And they pivoted entirely online to deliver online classes, and over a million people have attended their online classes mm. over the last year. So, pretty impressive numbers. But Michaels are still very much interested in bringing the classes back to the store, and, and so mm. and there is demand for it. So, I think you know, last year, if, if you know, create, we saw a lot of creativity. 
in virtual experiences. You know, I ran a survey at the start of the year and 75% of the respondents had never run a exper virtual experience before 2020. And now if I was to run that survey again, I would say it would be, you know, 90% of folks have run a virtual experience this year. So I think that change in the adoption, some people are going to be more comfortable um, for, for, the, for the long term participating in these virtual experiences because it removes geographic barriers. But we're also seeing a big kind of, I suppose, pent up demand. You know, once vaccination rates started hitting a, a threshold, we saw the volumes of bookings for in-person experiences go up dramatically. I would say 85, 90% of our customers are back running in-person experiences. We're seeing consumers book ahead a lot more. So the booking window from participating, say, in a, in a, in a brewery tour or a distillery tour, you know, it's gone from kind of eight days out to 15 days. So people are thinking ahead more. They're also spending more on premium experiences. So whereas they might go for the group tour, which uh, could be $10 ahead, they're instead doing private tours. Partially, that could be to mitigate for some of the safety concerns they have. But it's also, um, I think it's also a signal of this kind of pent up demand that we're seeing from consumers who are really, really excited to get back to in-person experiences. But yeah. definitely, I think the I think right now Delta has got a little bit of concerns, but we're seeing yeah. some of that mitigate in terms of booking volumes. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense, and and good to hear. So, so you mentioned some of the brands that you work with. So, those are the those are the kinds of companies that you target with your messaging. What would you say are some of the biggest challenges that you guys face when you're reaching out to a new account that? hasn't done experiential marketing yet, but you can sense, oh, there's some potential there. What are some of the roadblocks you guys have to overcome in terms of just engaging with them at first and sort of sparking the kind of conversations that you want to be having? Well, I think it, it ties to, to, to the audience, right? So there's different types of, of, of folks that will, will be looking to run experiences. You have the typically the marketing audience who who ha are probably more familiar with a lot of experiences and events. Then you have kind of the digital transformation, kind of CX type folks who are really trying to improve the customer and brand experience. And so they may, may be less uh, familiar with, with running kind of experiences and, and events. And then the third book, it would be kind of, we see a lot of retail folks really trying to rethink the retail experience in terms of how do I get people back in store or how do I engage shoppers online in a way that'll you know, drive more loyalty for the brand. So I think the first big challenge a lot of people face is how to get started. You know, there's a lot of folks out there who have been running experiences. They're experiential brands. You know, Budweiser's had their brewery tours for many, many years now. But then there's other, other brands that are just getting started. You know, we're talking to, a, to an automotive parts supplier, you know, who's mm. on the B2B side. But they they want to build some brand awareness for some of their um, some of their products, so they're 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 thinking about running some sponsored field events and activations, and so and it's to, it's to build some awareness for their for their brand, which is a a brand that you may not you know be familiar with, and so I think it's that first it kind of zero to one phase is what most people find really difficult when it comes to experiences. How do I get started? And and that's where you know I really encourage uh, folks to to think like a scientist and, and, and try to experiment. And so what we see, especially over the last year, is that you know, senior executives not only want strategic advice on how to get this program started, you know, how do I measure the, the ROI of it, what kind mm -hmm. of data and what kind of benefits is it going to bring my company, but they also want to see 
how do I get started? What's the playbook? And typically we, we, we either educate or inform the, the teams within these brands or we, we partner with an agency to, to, to kind of outsource that creative process and some of that executional overhead for the brand. Okay. So there's a, a, a f- deliberate focus on education, sort of that classic content Big, marketing mode of putting content out there that's going to show people the light, help people, help people figure out just how to get started with experiential marketing. You know, I think that and it ties to something like podcasting, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. one of the things that you do well, Jeremy, is is educating uh, your audience on how to get started with podcasting, you know, how to make your podcast a success. And I think a lot of the concern around podcasting, just like with, with any experience, is that first one, right? And so people worry, marketers tend to worry a lot about production values, the brand, all these types of things that will will kind of reasons for not doing it. So mm. what we try to think about here is what's your MVP? How do you tr- try this methodology out, test the workflow? And again, I look to the to Michael's stores as a real inspiration to, to us all. Jen Harness, who's the head of content over there, ran their first online class from her kitchen. Now the mm. audience was, was a bunch of close friends of the company or you know family members of the co- and they were able to test online experiences in that way. And so I think that, that, that ability to, to test and learn and iterate is something that marketers really, really need to adopt beyond just A-B testing on a website, which can be quite easy to do. Mm-hmm. So, so let's talk a little bit more about that and specifically what you guys have learned about that education piece, how you've optimized it over time, because th- there are so many different ways you can go about trying to educate an audience. What have you learned over the past couple of years that you found has really worked for you? And what have you learned about what doesn't work so well? Well, I think is, um, you know, funnily, when we think about B2B marketers, B2B marketers are kind of, were kind of ahead of the game on webinars for such a long time, or virtual mm-hmm. events, rather. We've been running webinars for, for years as part of a thought leadership or educational content piece, whereas consumer marketers have been doing a lot of things like you know, Instagram live streams. So the content was a little bit more one way or broadcast versus kind of interactive, like a lot of webinars can become. So I think what I've, what I've learned over the years was that, you know, we have an ability to produce really, really good thought leadership content in a lot of these B2B brands where we have experts on topics. We can enlist our partners. We can enlist our customers to tell these stories and I find that kind of that webinar format is a great way to have a platform um, to tell that story. And then you can take that content and then reuse it. So there's the, there's this, there's a term create once publish everywhere acronym mm-hmm. cope is what it's called. And I'm a big believer in that. We go to, we go to the trouble of producing a really interesting uh, podcast or a webinar. Why don't we make sure that we reuse that content, whether it be audiograms or pieces of video that can be put onto YouTube and extend the life of that material, but also make it snackable so that an audience can encounter that content when they're browsing the internet or when they're when they're in 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 the moment for that thirty second snippet of information that may pull them closer to your brand. And so, mm-hmm. I, I try to make sure that thought leadership is is not commercially focused on really telling the any road story. It's about telling the customer story and putting putting that customer or that expert's opinion out there in a way that is authentic 
and and valuable and meaningful to the to the audience. And so we see that in the engagement numbers. And I al- always try to try and collect feedback uh, from mm-hmm. users after things like webinars. But for me, a webinar is one of the most powerful ways to build a presentation, get a story together, and then use that to to extend the the life of the content. Yeah, that's great. And of course, webinars, like you say, in the B2B world, have become a very popular medium. And it seems like, especially over the last few years, maybe they were popular before too, but it seems like more and more folks are doing webinars. And so what's something that you've learned about webinar production what's something that maybe you used to do that you no longer do or how how have you fine-tuned it over time to get to the place where you're making that snackable content using that that cope methodology which is great to you know it's i totally totally agree that's the way to go how is how is your webinar strategy evolved what's something when you look back a couple of years you say like yeah we we learned that we're not doing that anymore now we're doing this I think there's two things. One is like a surprising one. I think the technologies come on come on leaps and bounds. So we're less concerned. I don't want to jinx our conversation right now <laughs> that the internet connections will go out or that, you know, the technology will fail. You know, I'm a big fan of, of Zoom's webinar platform. It's not very fancy. It doesn't have the bells and whistles, but it doesn't fail. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas I've been on webinars with, you know, 3,000, 4,000 people live on them where the technology's gone down. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, we still take a lot of precautions to make sure things work, but I also think that there's less anxiety or angst around live streaming than there would have been, say, five years ago, which is, which is a good thing for sure. I don't know if you've, you've felt that, Jeremy, in, in your world as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I certainly in the world of podcasting, right, there's just the technology keeps getting better. That's not a surprise. And there are newer and better platforms. Like when it comes to remote recording, like what we're doing right now, the platform we're using, Riverside FM, shout out to the Riverside folks. They're my go-to because I've used everything and they're kind of relatively new and, and they're really good. So yeah, totally, totally uh, agree with you. So, so one lesson, if I'm hearing you right, is just take care of that technology piece, sort of be secure in the technology and sometimes going with, the less fancy, less bells and whistles option is good, especially if you feel like this is really sad. This isn't gonna, this isn't gonna freak out while we're doing the webinar. Well, they said, you know, you know, pick the right tool for the job. If you're trying yeah. to do a large interactive trade show type virtual event, you know, Zoom is not going to be the technology for you. But if you wanted to do kind of a two talking heads, you know, Riverside can work really well for the recording, but if you want to actually you know, broadcast that live. So our podcast, Polaris, which I know you're going to ask me about later, but Polaris is, we broadcast it live as a webinar with interactive Q&A that has a registration component to it. So people can get early access to the content and exclusive access to the interactive Q&A piece. We chop that down, edit it into a recording that's audio a podcast and then also an on-demand recording of the webinar so that there's one piece of content that can be used kind of three different times i think i think my take my other takeaway which is something that i wasn't sure about was i used to always gate every piece of content that i had mm. it's always behind a form whereas i feel this my, my threshold for what goes behind a form is definitely is definitely much higher now i think i i want to provide audience easy the audience easy access to our to our material. So whether that's the 
full recording on the content in the in the podcast, which is audio only, but also the full video recordings for any of our podcasts and webinars are available on our blog without any sort of form to log into. What I do try to make sure is maybe there's a premium section. So if you want to to to, to listen to the Q and A component, that's gated. So because you know, so there's a there's a certain amount of stuff that will gate, and I, I find that we have much higher engagement, much higher volume of hits and engagement and views by ungating content. The challenge is you have to de-anonymize that traffic by by mm-hmm. kind of bringing people on a little bit of a journey and hopefully getting them to fill out a form at some point in, in their journey. They, they'll feel compelled to do that. Yeah. Why do you think you're getting more engagement with when you de-gate like you, like you described? Well, you know, we're, we're a relatively un, you know, new brand, so we have low brand awareness. So we have to establish trust with our audience that, you know, this is material is worthwhile, it's meaningful. And I think by putting it behind a gate, we're, we're really kind of, you know, we're, we're kind of creating unnecessary friction mm. when we're developing our brand, building our brand and, and engaging the audience. And I think, you know, we've tested this in terms of, you know, the, the conversion rate on the forms. I would say our conversion rate on our forms is a little bit lower than, than, than average. So I, I came from a company called Optimizely before this. Very, very high brand awareness amongst marketers. Our conversion rate on, on, on our landing forms and our gated content was super high because there was a certain amount of trust in the quality of the content because the brand had been around for so long. Whereas uh, AnyRoad hasn't built that connection to our audience yet where they'll know that the content is worth you know, passing over your valuable first-party detail with. We call it the, the value exchange. Is the value exchange sufficient that we deserve to be trusted with that, with that prospect's you know, contact information? Typically for live events, it definitely is, but for sometimes for recorded content and, and material like that, it's not. And so we kind of have to use that kind of that judgment every time we decide to gate something. Makes sense. Now, you mentioned the podcast, and so this is part of your strategy of repurposing the webinar into podcast form. And what, what have you found that, what do you do to make the, that content work as a podcast as opposed to a webinar? Because they're kind of similar, but obviously not the same thing. Yeah, I think, I think to, in order for the webinar to make it as a podcast, it, I, I, it has to be this Q&A style, which has a structure, it has a flow. And it's not like a broadcast medium where we're just presenting slides. So if, if, it's a sli- if it's a kind of a slide presentation, that wouldn't make it into our podcast. We, we only do, it's our Polaris Q&A series, basically, where we interview marketing leaders, executives, and then creatives for the most part. You know, we, we had Francisco Crespo, former chief growth officer of Coca-Cola on. Karen Katz, who was the former CEO of Neyman Marcus on, talk about the future of retail experiences. And so it's really quite an interactive conversation style. The audience engagement piece doesn't come to the end, so we can edit out that content. So it, it feels like a podcast, like a traditional podcast, which is a, which is a two-way conversation. And then the, the interactive components that are webinar-based are kind of cropped out of the actual uh, podcast recording itself. Mm-hmm. Okay, very cool. Well, it always warms my heart when I see a brand doing podcasting. And very cool to see you guys doing that. Well, you know, I think it's, it's it, you know, our, our, our thought here was it was an experiment. I would say our production values are, 
a little lower than I would like them to be. I'd like a little bit more of that cope methodology going on, but I'd like to add a little bit more polish and, and tidy up of, of some of the content in the podcast. And I think as we kind of staff up and grow as an organization, I, I, I'm pretty sure that we'll spend a lot more time in terms of polishing this thing off and, and making it work a little bit better. Very cool. So let's sum things up a little bit. What's something you've learned over the past couple of years or even throughout your career that you can share with our listeners to help them improve their audience engagement? You know, I'm, I'm actually going to repeat myself here and, and, and say that we've got to, as marketers, we've got to think like scientists. You know, we, we, we have to experiment more. And we have, the, we have an ability here now to really to, to, to track and understand the impact of things. So whether it's digital advertising or digital experiences, we can instrument those things so we can track to see which version of, a, of a, our iteration of an experience is better. So I had an example this week where I had a, dis- well, I had a disagreement with my, my boss about some of the messaging on our homepage. I felt it should be one way. He felt it should be another and what we did is we just tested the two hypotheses and his one actually turned out to be better. You know, it had a, what we used is it was messaging, some messaging changes on the website and, and his version had a much lower bounce rate. So the, the number of people mm-hmm. that hit the page and continued to browse was higher with his iteration than it was with mine. So I love being proved wrong by an experiment. <laughs> and I think as marketers, we should embrace that. We should embrace the, the, the kind of art and the science of marketing. And so we have an ability now with modern technology to bring more science to our creativity. And it's not, um, it's, it's not something that we should, we should take for granted. Well put. Great. I love that insight. Well, thank you, Michael, thank you so much for a great conversation. Uh, thanks for your time. I'm really glad, glad we had a chance to talk. Jeremy, thank you for, for having me on. And, and I really enjoyed the conversation. That's it for this episode of Engage Your Tribe. You can subscribe anywhere you get podcasts on any podcast app. And while you're at it, you might as well give the show five stars and leave an over-the-top comment about how much you love the podcast. You know you want to. If you're a marketer or an internal communicator and you're interested in podcasting, we've got tons of free resources on the website at tribknowledge.com. That's T-R-I-B knowledge.com. Thanks for listening and staying engaged.